are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. June verses 18 through 26. And it says, I hated all of my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows, who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool? Yet he'll be a master for all for which I told and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I tuned, turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has the man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toiled under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can, who can have enjoyment? For the, to want, for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and is striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Thanks, Logan, for reading the text. Thanks, Heather, for praying for us. And thanks, worship team, for leading us again this morning. I'm excited to jump into Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 through 26 that Logan just read for us. And so uh, we're, it's our third week in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so we're calling this sermon series Life Under the Sun. And so you can think of this sermon as, as work under the sun. Work Under the Sun. That's the title this morning. So I recently heard a pastor uh, reference an article that breaks down the average life into the amount of years that we will spend on specific tasks based on a normal life expectancy. And so this piqued my interest. It was done in Australia. I looked it up. And so it's saying that based on an average life of 79 years, of those 79 years, a person, listen to this, We'll spend 33 years of those 79 in bed. Um, so this isn't like a mattress uh, plug or anything. I didn't get a new gig. Um, but 33 years in bed. But listen, 26 years of it is sleeping, um, and seven years is trying to get to sleep. Amen. Uh, we spend 13 years and two months at work, 11 years and four months of screen time. Four years and four months of eating. So maybe you're above average or below average on some of those. But 13 years and two months at work. So how we view and how we approach our work, it's significant because it's such a large part of our life. Even if you're a college student here this morning, you're, you're studying to prepare to work. At least, at least your parents hope that is true. Um, and there's a lot to be said about work in the scriptures, right? We were created and mandated from the beginning to be cultivators, to be developers. And Ben reminded us week one that, that work isn't a result of the fall, but the nature of work changed at the fall. It became toilsome and potentially selfishly motivated. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about work. Proverbs 28, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. Proverbs 11, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight 
is his delight. So it's an admonition towards integrity in your business dealings. One of the most uh, quoted verses around my house growing up was 2 Thessalonians 3. You know, parents just kind of have these verses somehow kind of like tucked away. And it was like if I didn't, if I wasn't eager to do chores or mow the yard, it was this verse. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now, you know, anybody else parents throw that out at you guys sometimes? Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily, ask for the Lord and not for people. So as believers, we're to do good and honest work, to work hard, to work under the Lord. We should work in a way that helps our, even helps our unbelieving coworkers, right? Helps them be receptive or open to our truth claims about Jesus. You know, Emmanuel Church, we've said this for so long. I know you know it. Emmanuel Church is not a building, right? Um, we are just as much Emmanuel Church when we are scattered through the city during the week is when we are gathered together. And so sometimes I enjoy thinking about all of you, um, not as much as when we're not so much like gathered here on Sunday, but thinking about Emmanuel Church scattered on a, on a Tuesday morning, thinking about everyone going about their work day. And some of you are like, hey, I'm trying not to think about that right now, but, uh, you know, you could be doing all number of things. I was trying to make a list in my head. Some of you are nursing. You're providing care to patients. Some of you are instructing students in a classroom. Some of you are supporting families, protecting vulnerable children, providing customer service, conducting a deposition, organizing volunteers, studying, going to class, making coffee, waiting tables, following up with potential prospects, leading your team, administering anesthesia, filling prescriptions, preparing food, caring for children, building, designing, creating, meeting deadlines, accomplishing tasks, responding to all those emails, right? Working, working, thinking of all the many things that we give our hands to during the week. It's really a beautiful thing, right? And there's, there's respectability, there's honor in all honest work. So if you remember how the book of Ecclesiastes is, stru is structured, Ben explained this to set the series up, there's this narrator who comes on the scene, and they make a few comments at the beginning and a few closing comments in chapter 12, and all in between is this voice. It's this voice of this person referred to as the preacher. And so some people believe this to be Solomon, some do not. Uh, but nonetheless, this preacher gives us insights from his life experiences. And sometimes it's difficult to know how to take what this preacher says. He says things that make us uncomfortable. He uh, says things that are painfully blunt and sometimes cynical. He's, his observations are, are sobering as he describes life under the sun. So as we get to chapter 2 and verse 18, where we are this morning, we're in the middle of the preacher. He's recounting this unsuccessful quest for pleasure and satisfaction. So last week, John Tavius led us. We looked at verses 1 through 11, and then the preacher was describing, do you remember, how he sought pleasure through self-indulgence, that he tried to cheer his heart with wine. He made great works. He had power and possessions and wealth and many sexual experiences, and he came to say it was all vanity. So this word used over and over again in Ecclesiastes is hevel, smoke, meaningless. And so the next stop on his quest was not pleasure and indulgence, but wisdom. He considers that in verses 12 through 17. 
But again, he was frustrated because in the end, he said, a wise person dies just like a fool dies. It's vanity, striving after the wind. So there seems to be this reluctance. Can you relate to this? There's this reluctance on the part of the preacher to accept his mortality, to accept the brevity of his life. He's bothered by the reality of his inevitable death. So when we get to verse 18 that that Logan just read for us, the preacher begins to examine the possibility of finding satisfaction and meaning through his toil, through his work. And so there's several myths that we hear in our culture uh, regarding work. Number one is, is that your work is your identity. It's not true. Our identity is found in whose we are, right? Not what we do. So we're sons and daughters of the king. Our identities that were loved and accepted in Christ. It was not just an individual identity. We have a communal identity as well, right? We're in the body of Christ as an, in this big adopted family of brothers and sisters. So your work isn't your identity. Secondly, we hear this one. Um, your work will change the world. Um, historically, this is not true. Um, uh, sorry. Um, most, if not all of us, have been reminded this, uh, of this. In 100 years, there's all new people. Most, if not all of us, will be forgotten. Uh, our work will not have a massive impact on the world. Um, but by the Lord's grace, maybe it will impact a few. Thirdly, there's this myth that, that the preacher seems to be wrestling with, that he's seeing for what it is, and it's this, that your work brings ultimate joy and fulfillment. That seems to be what he's wrestling with. In 2005, during what has become a really well-known commencement address at Stanford University, uh, Steve Jobs said this. Many of you may be familiar with this uh, or may have seen this, this address. It's only 15 minutes long. But he says, your work is going to fill a large part of your life, and the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. He continues, if you haven't found it, keep looking. Don't settle. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know when you find it. And like any great relationship, it just keeps getting better and better as the years roll on. So keep looking for it until you find it. Don't settle. So did you hear it? He says the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And certainly there's a lot of value in believing in what you do and feeling, uh, working wholeheartedly in what you do. But it's probably helpful for us to consider that this type of thinking, this follow your heart, your job needs to be the pursuit of your passion, and it'll provide you satisfaction. That this, this way of thinking, it's just, it just it's helpful for us to pause and realize that, that the vast majority of people throughout history, the vast majority of people on the globe today do not have the luxury to think this way, right? So what about them? Can they have satisfaction? Can they have pleasure? Truth is, most of us either like legitimately don't have a dream job, or maybe you have it and the odds of you attaining it are slim, um, and that's just the reality we live in. And what we'll see in the text today is that's okay. There's, there's still contentment available for you. I think about my, my grandfather, the, the generation before. He worked 40 years, the same company, Ingalls Shipyard in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Worked there for 40 years. I think about my mom retired elementary school teacher, almost all of it at the same little elementary school, day after day, year after year, same job. Guys, there are hardships in every position. 
as a result of the fall, even in the dream jobs, there's thorns and thistles in all work. So let's look at what the preacher says about his work in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18. I want to read verse 18 again. So if you have that, you can read along with me. Verse 18, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. He's not mincing words, is he? I hated my toil. So he hates his toil, hates his work. And why? What's causing him to reflect and hate on hate his work? He says, I hated my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. He hates his toil because he's now realizing that what he's worked for, the fruits of his toil, they're temporary. They're not lasting. And so this consistent theme in Ecclesiastes, it's this sobering recognition of just how temporary we are, how short our lives are. So he continues from verse 18 into verse 19. Speaking of this person who will come after him, he says, and who knows whether he'll be a wise, whether he'll be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all of which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. Preacher's frustrated, it seems, frustrated by his lack of control, by his powerlessness, that this person who comes after me, they may be wise, but they also might be a fool. They aren't going to be able to care for my kingdom as well as I could have. They won't know what to do with it. So he continues in verse 21. Let's skip down there. He says, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and great evil. He says, this, is, this isn't fair, it's unjust. This person who comes after me, they get to benefit from, listen to how he describes himself, from my wisdom, my knowledge, my skill, even though they didn't work for it. Do you see the arrogance of the preacher in these statements? Truthfully, we can be like this. Our own ability, our own competence, it gets kind of exaggerated in our own minds, in our own eyes. We forget that everything that we have is a gift from God. The preacher's attitude here reminded me of a story um, that I got a kick out of remembering from our first year in Birmingham. Uh, we had, it's 2012, we moved here and we bought a little house um, over in Crestwood, not far from here. Um, and uh, we were excited because we found out uh, Cody and Logan, the Gibbons, were buying a house in, in kind of the same neighborhood. Um, and so we had uh, one, I believe it was a Sunday afternoon, we had gone by to, um, they'd given us the address, we to drive by and check out their new house. And uh, we were driving by, I'm showing I loaded up little infant Levi in the back seat, and we're driving, and we're kind of like uh, doing that kind of creepy slow drive, you know, where somebody's kind of looking for something, we're watching the house numbers go by and go by, and we see, like, oh, I think, I think that's the house they're going to be buying. Um, but we kind of feel embarrassed because as we roll by the house, 
they're actually in the front yard with the new owner or with the, the former owners. And we're like, oh, you know, so we're kind of trying to save face and scoot on by. Um, and then as we keep rolling by, we look, and it just looks like a peculiar interaction going on. So, like, they're all four, like, holding uh, wine glasses, uh, which is super out of character, especially for Logan. Um, and so they're all they're holding wine glasses, and uh, Cody and Logan kind of giving the nod. And these uh, these owners of this house are very in a kind of an animated fashion, like referencing to the to the shrubs and the and the, and the flowers and the bushes. And they seem to be uh, explaining something of great importance, you know. And so uh, we get home, and later we're like, hey, you know, like the house, but what what in the world was going on in the front yard? And they said, well, they had been uh, cordially invited to a, a wine and garden tour um, by the by the former owner of this home to um, in, in great detail explain the proper care for each and every plant and flower and shrub that they had so lovingly planted all around this house um, in hopes that this person who comes behind them will carry this on in in their absence and so um, I know you're just curious. You're just curious what happened. I mean, you can read Ecclesiastes, right? You you know what happened to those plants. Um, it's just biblical. And um, so so years later, when the Gibbons sold the house, there wasn't really much need for like a second wine and garden tour at that point. Um, but we uh, we would used to crack up thinking about that former owner driving by the house and just kind of sneering, you know, just muttering to themselves, how could they have, you know, done this to this specific plan or, or whatever the case may be. And that type of attitude, it reminds me of, of the preacher here, realizing that his toil won't bring him satisfaction, that everything he's worked for, it's temporary that one day it will be entrusted to another. And so what effect does this have on the preacher? We see it in verse 20. He says, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toils of my labors under the sun. He's discouraged, he's frustrated, he's angry. Ultimately, he concludes that the gain from his toil was not worth the price he had to pay. The benefits of his work, of everything he had accomplished, it won't last. And it'll be passed along to someone who didn't even work for it, who may or may not take care of it. The accomplishments of our toil will not ultimately satisfy us. I'm going to read you a quote. I'm not going to tell you who it's from. Many of you will guess by the time I, I finish it. Uh, here's a hint. He's, he's still playing. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? That's the GOAT, Tom Brady, in 2005. He's 44, still chasing, still, granted with more Super Bowl rings, uh, but still chasing that. I wonder if he's content. The preacher concludes his thoughts on toil in verses 22 and 23. Look at it with me. It says, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart 
in which he toils beneath the sun. It's this rhetorical question, then he answers himself. Verse 23, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. So he says, what did I get from my work? What did I get from all this toil? I got sorrow. I got trouble. I got sleepless nights. It's all vanity. You see, we can be prone to worry because we think we need to have more and we strive to figure out a way to have more or we feel the need to impress others or we don't want to be seen as a failure and so we work really 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 hard to be successful and then we finally become successful but we're not happy because we're worried about being able to stay successful there's always another achievement to chase and always something else to build or attain or accomplish And so we work ourselves into this weariness and then we go home and worry that our effort wasn't enough and we're busy thinking of how we can do more or do better and we we can't sleep. We're tossing and turning, chasing the wind, meaningless. Tim Keller says this, when work is my identity, success goes to my head and failure goes to my heart. Throughout Ecclesiastes, we notice this thread of discontentment. It's all through the book. The preacher is just just pervasively discontent over and over. And this has caused me, as we've been reading through this book, to just really consider the nature of contentment. To think about what a precious thing contentment is. I want to share a verse with you. It's seven powerful words. I want to share a verse with you, 1 Timothy 6. 6. I'm going to read it twice. I want you to, to think on this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. I'll read it one more time. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So if there's a, a goal we need to be shooting for, if there's a gain that we want to obtain this morning, it's contentment. What's the value on this? It's priceless, right? A person marked by discontentment, think of this. There's nothing that they can achieve. There's nothing that can be done for them that will satisfy them. And Likewise, there's almost nothing that can happen to a content person to steal their joy. And that's what we see in Philippians chapter 4. Likewise, or contentment isn't about circumstances. It's a hard issue. Our contentment is meant to be found in Christ. So I want to distill all of this into one statement. We've got two points today. It's our first one, kind of our main one here. Here's our point. Our work is a means for us to bring goodness and flourishing to the world. But the benefits of our work are temporary, and our accomplishments cannot ultimately satisfy our souls. I'm going to read it one more time. Our work is a means for us to bring goodness and flourishing to the world, But the benefits of our work are temporary, and our accomplishments cannot ultimately satisfy our souls. So what's interesting about about Ecclesiastes is that it just just feels like like a hopeless book at times. It's very difficult to read. And then every once in a while, there's just these little these little glimmers of hope, this little brief break in the clouds just for a few verses and so that's that's what happens here in verse 24 through 26 that he's just concluded this long section 
about this unsuccessful quest for satisfaction. Pleasure doesn't satisfy. Wisdom doesn't satisfy. Toil doesn't satisfy. And so his statement in these next verses is really peculiar. Read it with me. He then says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. And so the preacher here rightly is saying that there are opportunities for us under the sun to experience pleasure. Thank God for that, that we can enjoy common graces. We can enjoy simple pleasures and even enjoy, in some ways, our work. That we should eat and drink and find enjoyment in our toil. But as believers, the kicker is that we do these things differently. We enjoy these gifts differently. The enjoyment of these common graces should be a worshipful experience for us. For the preacher says here in verse 25, for apart from him, apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So we should recognize that these simple pleasures under the sun are from the hand of God. That's what the book of James says. Every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. So think about it. That gorgeous sunset that just stops you in your tracks for a few minutes from the hand of God. That first cool early fall morning that signals finally a new season is here. It's coming at least. It kind of comes in waves in Alabama, but it's from the hand of God. That stunning overlook at the end of a hiking trail is from the hand of God. Laughter, music, creativity, beauty from the hand of God. The talents and gifts that we see in one another, God-given from his hand. That, That refreshing drink on a hot day. That satisfying meal that just hits the spot. There we go, that invigorating cup of coffee, amen. They are from the hand of God who created these things. And our enjoyment of them should cause us to to praise him. The problem is we distort that. We become obsessed or we become addicted. We distort it, but he's good. He imagined these things. He created them, and he wired us with the capacity for enjoyment. So it's clear for us that these pleasures aren't ultimate, but they remind us of how good he is. So even today, on this rainy day, if you have the the gift of just taking a nap this afternoon, of resting, just think about that from the hand of God. If you enjoy a good meal or a good cup of coffee or, or even a good conversation with a friend this afternoon from the hand of God. So our second point, before we close is this that proper relationship with our creator allows us to enjoy simple pleasures in a deeper and healthier way and that includes our work so as i've prepared this sermon the last couple weeks i've been praying specifically for a couple groups of people in here i've been praying for the achievers 
in the room. Those who would consider themselves to be the hard workers, the ambitious personalities. I've also been praying for the ones of us who, who at times feel pressure to perform. The people pleasers, very concerned with their image, concerned of what people think of them, prone to hiding, lacking vulnerability. Those who carry this burden of gaining approval, impressing others, achieving, accomplishing, constantly toiling under the sun, yet discontent. So if that might be you this morning, are you weary, brother or sister? Are you weary of that? Do you wish it was another way? I'm hoping that you do because Ecclesiastes is difficult. On the surface, it looks hopeless. But if you look a little deeper, it's difficult to see, but there is hope in Ecclesiastes. It's a veiled hope, but it's there nonetheless. And the reason it's hopeful is that Ecclesiastes does this. It highlights this ache that we have for satisfaction, for purpose, that we want it to be true. We want there to be more to life than these vain pleasures. We want things to be made right. Why is that? Why are we not satisfied with these half-hearted pleasures, these, these temporary things, these Super Bowl rings, or whatever it may be? Why is it not enough? It tells us in chapter 3, we'll get into it next week, but I believe it's because God has put eternity into man's heart, is what it says in chapter 3. My favorite verse of the book. John Tavia shared that. Pascal quote last week, it's a similar idea that, that there's this God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only God the creator. That's where there's hope. It's pointing you to someone in Ecclesiastes. The preacher's pervasive discontentment points us to the one who can satisfy. And he calls to us even this morning. He pursues us even now, he pleads with us, brother and sister. He says stuff to us like, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He's good. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we know that you satisfy us, Father, that you give us good gifts, namely the gift of your Son. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that they would work wholeheartedly and diligently and honestly and even passionately, Father, but Lord, that we would find our grounding, we would find our center, we would find our satisfaction, Lord, in you, not an identity that we can create through achievement. Father, I pray that we would live for things that are eternal and lasting and unperishable. Father, I just pray for the hearts of my brothers and sisters this morning. Father, that even as they consider the hopelessness that the preacher spoke of through the text this morning, Lord, that they would consider the great hope we have in Christ. Father, we thank you that there is one 
as we read in Psalms, that, that satisfies our soul, Father. We thank you for him, Lord. We desire to honor you for the rest of this time. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.